Hope Ames, it is so good to be with you. My name is Danny Hauselder. I'm the campus pastor. Uh, I have missed you so much, and I just cannot even begin to explain how grateful I am to be able to gather together in person. Thank you for wearing your masks. Thank you for maintaining social distance. Thank you for sitting up in the balcony, even though I really think those are my favorite seats. So hello to those of you who are sitting in the balcony. Uh, Good to be with you all. Um, But can we just praise God for the opportunity to be here today? Man. Like I said, I just miss you like crazy. We say it all the time. You've already heard it today, but we believe it's no accident that you're here. We've been praying for you, and so we are just so glad that we get to worship with you today. We're in a series. This is our second week. It is called All Things New times 7. 7 is a number with significance throughout the Bible. It's not that the number 7 itself has power, but it's what the number 7 represents. 7 is the biblical number for perfection. And when we think about perfection, it's something that we want to reach, but we realize oftentimes we're living in a world that is much less than perfect. But God promises us in the Bible, he is in the process of making things new. And that is a really, really good promise for us to hear because we are living in a world where things feel broken and things feel damaged. I've got good news for you if there are things in your life right now that are broken or damaged. If things are broken or damaged, according to the Bible, it means that they have not reached their end yet. If you go to the very end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, the last chapter in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, Jesus says to the the author John through a dream, look, I'm making everything new. The end of scripture tells us about the end of all things, right? But to our great surprise, the end of all things is the beginning of all things new. Everything will be made right. Everything will be brought to perfection. Everything. God is in the business of making things new. And if you're like me, and I think that a lot of you are uh, in this position today, that's really, really good news to hear. Because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is damaged. We live in a world that lacks perfection. It seems like something we could only dream of. And while it is something that we dream of today, it is a reality that is coming our way because we trust in a God who promises us, I will make all things new. And we worship a God who keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. When things are broken or damaged, what do you do? We get desperate, don't we? Uh, For Abby and I's wedding this past summer, we got a lot of awesome gifts and a friend of ours gave us a bedspread. And it's a really nice bedspread and we love it. The only unfortunate thing is that it's pretty lightly colored. And so we were doing our absolute best not to get a stain on it, not to, you know, like put anything on it. And we were doing a really good job until one day I was sitting on the bed and I was writing down some notes and I had a pen in my hand. And uh, I was starting to stand up and as I put my hand on the bed to help myself up, the pen cap was still off and there's just got the tiniest little dot on there. And I really love this bedspread, you know, because it's our bedspread, but now there's, there's a flaw to it. I mean, like, maybe you wouldn't even notice it at all, but I knew it was there. You know that, thing, that feeling? And so I start to think, I'm like, okay, I've got to do something to fix this. It's not just a bedspread. This is a bedspread that belongs to the person I love more than anything, anyone in this world. Like, I've got to fix this. So I look up a simple solution that I can try to hopefully clean this off with. I get a paper towel. I, I put the solution on there. I start to wipe it, and I start to scrub, and it's getting worse. It gets bigger. And now this little flaw that you wouldn't have seen with the naked eye, you can see it from across the apartment. Like, oh, this is horrible. I had like this Lady Macbeth moment. I couldn't get the stain out. I'm like, oh, I'm so guilty. I felt so bad. Abby sees it. 
And she's like, what happened? I'm like, well, I'm the only other person who lives here. <laughs> it's COVID. No one's coming over. And I did it. I couldn't fix it. I needed someone to be able to fix this problem. And we've got a God who comes into our world and he says, I've got a solution for the damage, for the imperfections. And there is nothing that's going to get in God's way of cleansing us, of getting that stain out that we can't get out on our own. You got stains in your life right now? Is there damages? Is there hurt in your life? I'm assuming that it's probably bigger than a little stain on a bedspread, right? It's the reality of the world that we're living in. You've got a God who's not threatened by your problems, who's not threatened by the damage, who's not threatened by the hurt or the pain. It matters to him, but he's not threatened by it. And he would travel the universe. He would cross any issue, look at eye to eye, face it off, just to be with you. It says this in Romans chapter 8, and this really blows me away. This is a promise in scripture. It says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. God would cross any pain, any hurt, any tragedy, any damage to love you. It doesn't just stop there. It continues. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. It says this, No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's almost aggressive, isn't it? Not in a way that's, that's uh, terrifying to us. Not in a way that ought to hurt us. But God's love is terrifying, isn't it? It is terrifying to the things that oppose what God loves the most. The Bible promises us this. God loves you. God loves you. The thesis statement of the Bible, if you will, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Maybe the verse that you don't know is John chapter 3, verse 17. Right after that, it reassures us. It promises us. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn us, to hurt us. God doesn't use his power against us. Instead, it says, it says that Jesus came into this world... To save us. God didn't come in the flesh to condemn this world. God came in the flesh to save this world. And those things, the evil that does exist, the damage, the hurt, and the pain, because of God's love for us, he is aggressive to face those things for us. You know, when you love someone, when you love something, you don't just experience love. You also make yourself vulnerable to outrage. It's kind of a strange concoction there. When you love someone, there's nothing that you wouldn't cross to show up in a doorway for that person. It was 10 years ago this week. I was having a really bad week. It's so my freshman year of college, I received two shocking phone calls. Within six days of each other, two of my friends from high school died. Freshman in college, I didn't have a car. I felt isolated and lonely. I didn't know how to deal with it. I was 18 years old. The first funeral came, I should have been there and I didn't go. 
The second funeral came. I should have been there, and I didn't go. It's the people that had an impact on my life. I was numbing myself because I couldn't face the pain and I couldn't face the hurt. I was in a meeting for a student organization on a Monday night. I was sitting in the back of the classroom when the emotion started to hit me. I couldn't ignore the pain or the hurt anymore. And I just covered my eyes because I began to weep in the back of this classroom. So like any 18-year-old should, I pulled out my flip phone and I texted my mom. I was just hoping she'd see it quickly and respond. The classroom door was barely cracked open and I heard a noise ding from outside the room. And I could see, I mean, I was in the one spot in that classroom where I could have seen out of the crack of this door. I live two and a half, my parents live two and a half hours away, but I look outside the crack of this door and there's my mom pulling out her phone reading a text from me. You know, it was middle of winter. There was probably some bad weather. It was two and a half hours away. There was no distance. There was no weather. There was no pain. There was no hurt that would threaten her away from coming to me. When you love someone, you are vulnerable to this rage against anything that would hurt that, the one that you love the most. And I think to myself, if my mom, as amazing as she is, is my imperfect mother, as amazing as she is, let me emphasize that because she'll listen to this later, as amazing as she is, my imperfect mom, if she could love me that well, how much more amazingly could my perfectly heavenly father love me? He travels the universe. There is nothing, no, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. He's not threatened. He comes to you. He nears you. Take a look at this next slide here. I love how the scriptures uh, describe God's love. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Excuse my typo there. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor, wa nor rivers can drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. That's what the Bible says about God's love. God's love loves you so much that it does indeed rage against the things that try to hurt you, that try to damage you, that seem like they're winning right now. There is nothing that threatens God. And I know that oftentimes in this world, it feels like there are the things that are bigger than life and it makes us feel small. It says this in Isaiah chapter 40, to promise us, to assure us. Excuse me, well, it says more about God's love. Our God is a consuming fire. It says this in Isaiah chapter 40 on the next slide. It says on the next slide, <laughs> my man, thank you. To whom will you compare me? Who's my equal? 
Maybe you're in those situations where it feels like there's the larger-than-life issue, the problem in front of you, and you begin to feel small because you feel vulnerable, and you realize you're not actually much of a match against the greatest fears of this world, and it hurts. God makes you a promise. God makes you a promise. And when you ask him, God, does this even matter to you? It feels like nothing's happening. Yes, it matters to God. Yes, it matters to God. It's just that God's not threatened by those things. As people of faith, when we talk about being people of hope, and we talk about believing that God will save us, when we talk about how we're not necessarily surprised that the worst of worst things can happen in this world, it doesn't mean we're not shocked. We're shocked. But when we stand here and we say, I still believe my God will win, it's not simply to stand around a fire and say, kumbaya, nothing else really matters. No, it matters. It's scary, it's frightening, but it doesn't scare our God. And God shares his strength with us. It says this just at the end of that passage, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will walk and not faint. That's a promise we need to remember especially in the times that we're living. It's not hard to think of the images of pain and difficulty these days, is it? Over the last 10 months, we've been facing a pandemic. You see images in hospitals like these. My goodness. I was talking to a healthcare worker recently who told me that they could not wait to the end of their shift to begin crying. Instead, they spent their entire lunch break weeping because of the things they were seeing. People are getting sick, people are dying. Seriously, just by a, quick, by, by a quick survey here, raise your hand if you or you know someone has been diagnosed with COVID in the last 10 months. <sighs> Nearly 375,000 people in the United States have died of this virus. My goodness, it hurts. We've seen different things, we've seen We've seen cries for justice. People saying, enough. I will not stand to face racial, or I will not stand to face systemic racism and racial injustice anymore. It's important that people will stand up and peacefully and nonviolently protest to say, we will not stand for this. Now listen, we live in Story County. I mean, odds are if you're here, you, you might live in Story County. In case you didn't know, I'm, I'm a white man living in Story County where it's 84% white. And because of that, if I'm not intentional, I could very easily put my head in the sand and ignore the realities that other people live through. I was having a conversation with someone the other day who, um, for, some reason or not, uh, for some reason or the other, this person brought up that they had a, a camera on their dashboard in their car. I was like, why do you have that? And he said to me, well, if you were a black man like me, you might need video uh, evidence on your side at a certain point in your life. <sighs> Things I'd never even think of. And again, with where I live and the way that I look, these are things I wouldn't have to think about. And listen, if you're like me, you've also been tempted at some point in the last several months to say, do we always have to talk about this? And do we always have to talk about race? Do we always have to talk about uh, injustice? Do we, always have, I mean, do we always have to go there? And then I'm reminded of the words from Pastor Hurst, who's one of our pastors at our, Elam, at our Hope Elam campus in Des Moines, who tells me, 
I can't go a single morning without being forced to think about the color of my skin. He's a black man. Is it such an inconvenience for you to have a conversation about it? It's real and it's surrounding us and it hurts. We have to talk about these things. And of course, there's what happened this week. As uh, there were folks who um, broke into the Capitol building in Washington. And I know that when I'm speaking to a congregation of this size, I know that different people come in here with different opinions and perspectives of what would happen on any given week. And of course, much more in a week where something very dramatic and extreme happened in our country. Things that hit very close to home. I want you to know that if you disagree with me, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's okay for us to have disagreements. I understand that. And if you disagree with me specifically on this certain issue, if you want to have that conversation, that's fine. But I, I do want to say this. I am choosing to sit with you. I am choosing to listen to you. I am choosing to have a conversation. And I am choosing to love you. Now, because we are people who are loved by God, I am also choosing to follow this compelling feeling that I have to share with you that when we see people who are breaking into a building and forcing people into hiding and into evacuation, we remember that the Bible tells us this in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we want to follow God, if we want to let the Holy Spirit transform our lives, we will see it by this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we do not use our power or our privilege to intimidate people or to threaten people. We don't have that option. And I know that this is not the first time, even in the last year, that someone has used their power to threaten, to damage, to violate others. I know that. Never makes it okay. As followers of Jesus, it's not okay. We need to be better. How do we respond to it? There's a lot of temptations, right? And we worship a God who promises us to cross the entire universe to face any trouble, damage, or fear that we might have just to show us his love for us. And there's a response to that. Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. That's a huge ask. Love is a word that oftentimes we just toss around. Sometimes we think that love is weakness. Sometimes we think that love is just passive. Love is defiant. Love is rebellious in a world gone wrong. Love is light shining into a world gone dark. Love is the only thing that will produce peace in a world of despair. And Jesus commands us, if you are my followers, you will love people. 
You will love people. And when we find ourselves in the, climate of the thing, in the climate of the world that we're living in today, we have all sorts of other temptations the way that we want to respond to that, right? We don't want to necessarily respond to it with love. Because when we feel threatened, we put our fists up. We fight. Or you flight. Choose one, right? I mean, no. Love the person who's hurting me? Hang in there with the people who hate me? Now, every time that I say something like this, I always feel like I need to throw in the caveat. If you are in a position where you are being abused, hurt, wounded, someone is demonstrating their power over you in a way to intimidate you, it is not your responsibility to fix that person. And there are times when you need to leave something or someone in order for your safety. Okay, now that I've said that, I also want to say this. While it is so tempting for us to put up our fists, it's not the way of Jesus. We have developed such an us versus them mentality. It's my way or your way is wrong. If you're not with me, you're against me. If we don't agree on every single thing, we can't be friends. It's not that it's not important to discuss important to discuss hot topic issues. It's very important to discuss those things. I believe that. I think that it's important that we have discussions in any way that we possibly can, especially during this COVID season. If that means reaching out to someone over a phone call and having this conversation. If that means having an email chain, discussing these things. If that means finding new literature to help educate yourself over all these things that are happening. Let's do it. Let's engage in those things. Let's talk about the disagreements. Let's walk with one another. But we've developed this mindset that there's an enemy and the enemy's a person. Let's just name it really plain and simple, right? We've developed this idea that, okay, on one side there's the left, and on the other side there is the right. And we think that it is us versus them, or us versus them, pick your side. And we think that there's like this tug of war, right? We've got to pull them to our side, and if we don't, we've lost. And if they start to pull us to their side, then we let go and we run. It's a nasty trick that the enemy has for us. Jesus says, here I am. I'm not saying that Jesus is in the middle politically of every single thing. I mean, I, Jesus is bigger than our politics. Jesus says, I want you to come toward me. I do not want you to clash with one another. Often we just meet in the middle, we just fight. What if we met at Jesus? The trick of the enemy, let's call it D for devil, is the devil wants us to fall into ditches. Just fall farther away from one another, into darkness, into sadness, into despair. What looks better? What looks like a more rich and satisfying way to live? As followers of Jesus, we, we can do this. I know that it seems so contrary to the rest of our society right now, but we can do this. Let me talk about the alternative that we have. I was reading in Psychology Today, fascinating website if you ever want to check it out. I was reading in Psychology Today how we actually respond to our conflict when we see the big problems in the world. The number one response that we have, blame. When we see a problem in the world, we seek for someone to blame. And like, when we just absolutely name it and look at it, just point blank, 
It's a little sad, isn't it, how much that resembles like a fight between children? It's, it's finger pointing. Psychology Today goes on to explain why people blame. There's five reasons, essentially, that they could sum it up with. The first is it's a defense mechanism. A defense mechanism meaning that it's easier to call out, it's easier to call out and blame somebody else than to be aware and recognize the problems and flaws in ourselves. In other words, a lack of self-awareness. Okay? Second, we are incapable of understanding the reasons for other people's behavior and our behavior. In other words, we're a little too lazy to put in the work to find out why people behave the way they behave. We are all more complicated than we want to admit. We've all got stories and backgrounds. We've all got perspectives that have been shaped through thousands of events. Let's put in the work together. The third one is it's easier to blame than to take responsibility. It's vulnerable to take responsibility. Again, it would take work. This one's really bothersome. We get satisfaction out of hurting people. You ever heard the phrase, hurting people hurt people? I think it's true. And then the final one is people lie. As one psychologist in the article put it, everybody lies and oftentimes we think it's easier to just get away with that than to take ownership. That list of five, I don't want to be associated with any of that. I don't want to lack self-awareness. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to hurt people. And I want to seek honesty. I want to be transparent. I want to be sincere. I want to be real. We oftentimes point the finger and we say, that's the enemy right there. We, we point to that person. God identifies an enemy too. I've been talking about how God's love has a rage to it as well, and God's love goes after the things that can hurt and damage us. And maybe we're like, ah, okay, so let's go ahead and, and seek out the person or the group that God wants to destroy. The Bible's clear. It says, these are the things that God hates. You've heard this in the Bible reading today, Proverbs chapter 6. These are the six things the Lord hates, and I love this. No, seven. In the Hebrew, it reads almost as if there are six things that the Lord hates, and there's a seventh one that he really detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. To sum that up, the words on the left are the things that God hates. Pride, lies, murder, death, plot evil, piling on, deceit, and division. Oftentimes, we're like, well, I, 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 thought that, I thought that God, you know, hated, you know, cert, like specific certain behaviors. I, the Bible points us that God's a little bit more interested about what's happening in the heart. What's happening on the surface level in our lives is just that. It is surface level. God goes deeper. God sees the heart, and he sees these things as the root. The issues that we have in our lives, 
We can see the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, the original law that God lays out, and the one through four, the first through fourth commandment are commandments about God, and it's essentially, if you put anything else before God, your life is going to be out of order. If you do put God first in your life, if you let God be your God, these other things will fall into order. You will not be a person of pride. You will not be a person who tells lies. You will not be a person who promotes death in this world and destruction in this world, literally or metaphorically. You will not be a person who plots evil. You will not be a person who just piles on and loves to womp on the pain that someone else is already feeling. You will not deceive people to manipulate them in order to have them follow your own intentions for the world. And you will not be a person who seeks division. Instead, you will be a humble person, an honest person, someone who brings life, seeks justice, steps back, in other words, gives grace, seeks truth, and unites people. One through four of the first of the Ten Commandments is that we are to put God first, and if God is first in the order of our lives, Commandments five through ten, the ones that talk about our relationships with other people, it looks like this. And it's too often in our world where we're seeing these things, pride, lying, death, evil actions, piling on, you know, the shame game. You know, like somebody looked kind of dumb, they looked kind of vulnerable, so that's our opportunity to look really good, so we pile on, we hit it really hard. We deceive people, we pretend like we're telling the truth. We're just manipulating them to do what we want, and then we divide. I get it, this side of heaven, we're not going to be perfect. That's why Jesus is still returning to make all things new. But as we follow God, we are doing everything we can. We are keeping our eyes on Jesus. And we can be a part of the body of Christ that removes these things from the world and instead points people to a better way. A better way. And we point the finger. But 1 John chapter 1 tells us this. If we say that we have no sin, we're only deceiving ourselves. Are any of us going to take responsibility? Because right now, there are two different sides that are pointing the fingers at one another. There's probably more than two different sides. I don't even know. Sometimes it seems like a 360 circle of people just pointing to the other side of the circle. Are any of us going to take responsibility and maybe just perhaps admit that part of the reason why we're living in the world that we live in is because I have contributed to the brokenness? I have contributed to the division I have contributed, contributed to the smug attitude that we feel like we have to carry around. I've contributed to the lies. I've contributed to the rumors. I've contributed to the deception. I've contributed to the division. 1 John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we only deceive ourselves. But those who confess they have sin have the right to become children of God. Are we starting to see it? Are we starting to understand it? The enemy is not a person. The enemy is the grip of sin. The sin is trying to take us away from God. Evil is trying to take us away from God. It is the devil's biggest trick to make us think that we are taking each other away from God, that we are taking life away from one another. It's because sin has a grip on us that we are, that we are the outlets, the tools that evil uses. And we're better than that. We're absolutely better than that. And we have an amazing example to follow. And we have an amazing God who can transform us and show us a better way. The Bible tells us he died for everyone. 
Jesus Christ died for everyone. And I can read that statement, kind of smirk and say, man, that means I'm so special. Yes, it does mean that you're special. You are so special that Jesus died for you. But why did he die for you? I mean, I know that when we talk about Jesus, sometimes we actually feel a little bit removed from Jesus. You know, he's a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and so his death might not impact us in the way that it probably should. The reason for his death doesn't convict us in the way that it should. And me too. Jesus died for me. says this in the book of Luke. Perhaps you've heard us say this before before we prepare to take communion. It says, This cup is the new covenant, Jesus said, between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sin, as a sacrifice, excuse me, as a sacrifice for you. Jesus died for me because he had to. Me. Jesus died for me because I am a sinner. Because I have pride issues. Because I have lied. Because I have created, been taken part in creating a society that does not bring life to people, but instead rips it away. Sometimes in more direct ways than I want to be honest. Have you ever ripped the smile off of someone's face? Have you ever jumped toward criticism instead of affirmation? I've been a part of plotting evil. I've been a part of piling on. I've been a part of deception. I've been a part of deception. I've been a part of division. I've taken part in it. Jesus died because of me. Jesus died because he had to for me. And that ought to humble me. God could have pointed his finger. He's the only one who could have finger pointed and gotten away with it. But instead, he pointed his finger at his son. He said, you go. You wear their sin. You bear their shame. Jesus died because he had to. For you and for me. And that ought to humble us. He didn't point his finger. Said he washed out our stains with his bloody hands. He cleansed us from our sin when all of our phony solutions failed us. Are you sick and tired of living in a world where every single brand new solution makes big promises and fails? We're not going to do it on our own. We've got to find a better way. Jesus died because he had to, and that humbles me, but are you ready for the really good news? There's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. What did he accomplish? The passage continues on to say that he accomplished by making many righteous. He sees you and he sees me. He sees us with him and that satisfies him. 
That brings contentment to his soul. You, me, we are the reason why God crossed the universe, why the word became flesh, why he dwelled among us, why he lived a perfect life, why he, died a per- why he died a death for imperfect people, why he rose from the dead so us imperfect people could one day experience perfection. He did it for us. Jesus Christ died because he had to, and that humbles me. But Jesus Christ died and he was glad to, and that transforms me. That changes everything for all of us. Not only did Jesus have to die, Jesus willingly died. He was glad to do it. Are you scared that someone's going to reject you for loving instead of fighting? Are you scared that someone's going to call you weak for forgiving when everything around you and everything in your soul wants to punch back? You have a God who died for you. I think this is probably the simplest ending to a sermon I've ever had. God died for us. God died for us. God died for us. I can't say enough. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, uncreated himself so that we could become a new creation. I can't get over this. I can't stop thinking about it. It can't help but transform my life. I have to change. I have to love. I have to be a person of grace. I have to be a person of humility and honesty, bringing life and seeking justice, bringing grace, stepping back, promoting truth. Bringing people back together because that is what God is in the business of doing. He is making all things new. He did die for us to raise us back to life. He did have to do it, but he was glad to do it. He died for me. We've done this before and I invite you to do it again. There's a fancy word in the church. It's called confession. And sometimes it's kind of scary. It's like, whoa, I got to confess, confess what? Every single one of us walks in this room today with some baggage. Some bags we've packed on our own, some bags that people have piled on us, and we've been forced to carry it for quite a long time. We don't want to open those bags because that's going to cause problems, right? You have a God who can carry those bags, you have a God who can deal with those bags. And so when we confess to God, we are simply showing up to God and saying, God, if I say I have no sin, I am only deceiving myself. But when I confess my sin, I am claiming the right that you have given to me to be your child, to receive your grace, to walk in your family. If we want to transform the world, let our hearts be transformed first. Let us come to God before this Let us come before God this morning and be real with him about the things that we've done and about the things that we've left undone, about the ways that we've contributed to the brokenness of the world. Because we know that when God transforms our hearts, he puts us in the business of making things new. Do you want that? Are you tired of breaking things down? Do you want that? I want that. To be a part of making things new. So if you join me, just go ahead and close your eyes. Take a comfortable posture, whatever it might be, and come before your God. And do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because this God loves you and this God, this God accepts you. This God receives you. This God already knows what's in your bags. Open the bag. 
Lord, you tell us in your scripture, you tell us in your word that if we say we have no sin, we are only deceiving ourselves. And Lord, I'm tired of being a person of deception. I'm done with it. I come before you today clean. Here's what I've done, God. Here's what I've left undone. Tell him. He's your father. He loves you. He doesn't want you to carry those things. They don't belong to you. He dealt with them with his own son on the cross. The Bible promises us when Christ died, so did our sin. And when Christ raised from the dead, the consuming God burned the sin. He burned the evil. He burned the damage down to smithereens. And we raised back to life with him. Now talk to God with that confidence. With that humility, but with that confidence as his child. Confess to him. By the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. You are made new. Let us follow Christ's example and be a part of making things new.